Hello and welcome to the podcast of tech.eu. I am your host, Andrew Degler. I am still actually on holiday, but I just cannot get away from the mic for too long. So in today's show, we have got you funding deals, IPO news, a couple of court cases, gig economy issues, and much, much more. Later on, I will play you an interview with Sonia Iovieno, who is the head of venture and growth at Silicon Valley Bank. But before we dive in, a quick reminder. Next week on Wednesday, March 17, we, the that is TechU are hosting the second free event in our series called To The Point. And this time we will talk about the digital health landscape in Europe with a stellar lineup of speakers representing Krista Galli Ventures, Cree, Ada Health, Hill Capital, Babylon Health and Wyra UK. So join us at 11am CET on March 17, that is Wednesday. I will leave a link to the registration page in the show notes, so don't miss this one. And now let us take a glimpse at this week's news. Swedish sound effects marketplace Epidemic Sound has landed 450 million US dollars at a valuation of 1.4 billion US dollars. The company currently has a library of 32,000 music tracks and 60,000 sound effects, and it offers unlimited access to them at a monthly fee. So it's sort of a Netflix for background music, if you will. The valuation of Epidemic Sound has grown about four times in just two years. The company itself has also grown tremendously together with all the YouTube channels, the podcasts, the other places where its music is played. Now, back in November 2020, if I'm not mistaken, rumors also surfaced that Epidemic Sound was considering an IPO. But to me now, it looks like it has decided to go the private route, at least for the time being. Next up, cloud application security startup SNCC has secured 300 million US dollars in a Series E funding round. The startup, which is based in Israel and the UK, it is now worth 4.7 billion US dollars, uh, which is four times again more than early last year. The round was co-led by Axel and Tiger Global, and it also seems like most of the existing investors also participated in this round. The list is really long, so I'm not going to read it right now because it will take another 10 minutes. Like many other Israeli startups, though, SNCC has its roots in the military intelligence unit of the country's defense forces, which is known as the Unit 8200. All co-founders of SNCC have served in that unit, and so at different times did many people who went on to found companies like Viber and Wix and so many other Israeli success stories. Next up, UK-based challenger bank Starlink has landed £272 million in funding. The company initially targeted a £200 million round, but ultimately decided to take in more money. The round was led by Fidelity Management and Research and valued Starlink at £1.1 billion pre-money. The fresh capital is expected to promote further expansion into the UK market, as well as propel the bank onto continental shores. Next up, a German indoor farming startup InFarm has raised 100 million US dollars. This round comes just six months after it landed another 170 million back in September. InFarm sells modular units for vertical indoor farming, targeting mostly supermarkets and restaurants. Currently, InFarm is growing salad greens and herbs, but it's also planning to use the funding to expand into new crops that would be mushrooms, tomatoes and chilies. Coming up next, Croatian electric car startup Rimac Automobili has received another capital injection from its existing investor that is Porsche. 
As a result of the deal, Porsche has increased its stake from 15% to 24%. And by the way, among other investors in Remak are also Hyundai Motor Company and Kia Motors. So Remak itself is mostly known by the public for its very powerful and extremely expensive electric cars, but it also works on battery technology and manufactures drivetrains. And that is, of course, what all the automakers I just mentioned actually interested in. And the last funding round for today, Ukrainian ad-tech startup Preply has raised 35 million US dollars, which is more than all the funding that it had raised before in total. The round was co-led by Owl Ventures and Fulin Partners with participation from previous investors Point9 Capital, Hoxton Ventures and All Iron. Preply, which is a tutor marketplace, uh, says that it has had an exceptional year in terms of business growth and it now plans to double its headcount across all all divisions and locations. Now a quick IPO note, a Danish consumer review platform Trustpilot, which we knew was going to IPO soon, has announced that it is aiming at a valuation of 1 billion pounds. The listing will happen on the London Stock Exchange before the end of March. Another company that's going to go public really soon is Deliveroo, and it's just dropped financial results for last year. Deliveroo recorded a loss of £223.7 million, which is about £100 million less than the year before. Its revenues, on the other hand, in 2020 reached £4.1 billion, up from £2.5 billion in 2019. So pretty good numbers ahead of the IPO, and same as Trustpilot, Deliveroo is expected to list in London within the next next few weeks. Moving across the channel, a French startup lobby organization France Digital has filed a complaint against Apple with the data privacy watchdog CNIL, according to a report by Reuters. The complaint alleges that iOS 14, that's the latest iOS by Apple, does not comply with EU privacy requirements. Namely, the complaint says that Apple can carry its targeted ad campaigns without clearly asking iPhone users for their consent. Apple in its turn said in a statement, and I quote, the allegations in the complaint are patently false and will be seen for what they are, a poor attempt by those who track users to distract from their own actions and mislead regulators and policy makers, the quote ends. And speaking of Apple, uh, the company is significantly expanding its engineering hub in Munich, Germany. Apple has announced that it will add hundreds of new employees and, I quote, a new state-of-the-art facility focused on connectivity and wireless technologies. Quoting further from elsewhere in the announcement, the expansion in Munich together with additional investment in R&D will exceed 1 billion euros in the next three years alone. Another big tech company that is Amazon has been investigated by the EU antitrust authorities since the year 2019, but it looks like the probe is not going that great. The Financial Times reported, citing unnamed sources, that the European regulators are struggling to put together a case against the US-based retailer. The initial allegation was that Amazon is using algorithms to artificially boost the visibility of its own products over its competitors. But this seems to be really hard to prove. To quote the report, EU officials are still struggling to understand how Amazon's algorithm works. Despite sending a series of detailed questions to the company about the criteria used to boost a product's visibility, the quote ends. It also mentions uh, an interesting thing that Amazon has actually shown the regulators financial evidence that is proving that it's not 
in the company's best interest to disadvantage third-party retailers in any way, shape, or form, because the bulk of Amazon's profit is actually coming from these retailers and not from selling goods on its own. Now, another interesting story reported uh, this week by our own Dan Taylor is about Web Summit, and that is one of the biggest European tech conferences. So in 2020, uh, you may remember, this event took place online and it hosted more than 100,000 attendees. And it was powered not by one of the software platforms that are popular with events, but it was powered by a platform developed in-house. And now Web Summit has started to license this software to other events, and the first known customer is the United Nations, namely the Istanbul Innovation Days event in late March. There is no information on whether there are more events in the pipeline, and Web Summit founder Paddy Cosgrave said that, I quote, we are in no rush for new customers, and we will take our time. In 2022, we hope to partner with other great events. The quote ends. And the final piece of news today comes from Spain. Earlier this week, I talked at our Clubhouse event with Sasha Michaud, the co-founder of Glovo, and we discussed, among other things, the upcoming gig economy regulations in Spain. So at that point, just a few days ago, no one was yet sure how exactly they would look like, but now we know what's gonna happen, and I'm pretty sure that Glovo is not happy about the way it has panned out. So on Thursday, the Spanish government announced that food delivery couriers will be classified as employees. And the likes of Glovo, Deliveroo, and Uber Eats have now three months to make necessary changes. Of course, this is a pretty significant blow to these companies, and also it is the strictest regulation of this kind in the EU. So it's really interesting how this all is going to work out, but it's also really interesting to see how uh, this will influence the work of the European Commission, which is, as we remember from the previous weeks, supposed to come up with a block-wide gig economy regulation later this year. Now, enough of policy, now it's time to get to our today's interview. Recently, our founding editor Roman Wouters talked to Sonia Ioviano, head of venture and growth at Silicon Valley Bank. Let us listen in. Hey, this is Robin Walters from Tech.eu, and I'm joined here today remotely, of course, as usual, by Sonia Jovieno uh, from Silicon Valley Bank. She's been on our podcast before, about two years ago, I would say. Uh, so really good to have you back for a catch-up. Uh, Sonia, how are you? I'm great, Robin. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back with you again. So tell us a little bit more about yourself and Silicon Valley Bank before we start. Yeah, sure. Um, I've been with SVB for about four and a half years. And at the bank, I look after our venture and growth banking clients who are basically really high growth, often high burn VC backed tech businesses. So um, usually sort of focusing on companies in the UK and, and across Northern Europe. And at SVB, we're really focused on working with companies in the technology, innovation and life sciences um, sectors, and also with the private equity and venture capital funds that look after them. So right from early stage, seed finance businesses, up through sort of large PLCs, um, we sort of focus in a very narrow way on those companies. Great. And Silicon Valley Bank, as the name suggests, was born in Silicon Valley, and it is a bank. Uh, what kind of bank is it? Or is it a commercial bank? Is it a business bank? Well, how do I need to uh, look at this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in many ways, we're a, we're a boring commercial bank. And um, our genesis really was sort of out of the valley 35, 40 years ago when tech entrepreneurs in the large tech companies we know today were really successful in reinvent and reinvesting in new tech startups. They couldn't really find a bank that 
understood that journey, particularly we've got really rapidly scaling businesses. Um, so these days we have a big footprint here in the UK where I'm based out of. We also have a full branch in Germany. We have some people on the ground in Ireland and in Denmark, um, a big office in Israel. And then in the Far East, um, we've got really good coverage across China. And of course, the US and, and Canada, where we have big operations. And, the, you know, our, our whole thesis actually is about how can we make these companies more successful? We're unbelievably lucky to work with multiple founders who are growing the most exciting companies. And we kind of, you know, make it our business to understand them, to find out what makes them successful, to work with their investors, and then to share that knowledge and that network with new founders um, and new teams who are coming up so that we can grow the ecosystem as large and as fast as we can. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to lean on those insights uh, to, to carry the conversation a bit further. However, first of all, I've actually been to the Silicon Valley office of uh, Silicon Valley Bank on Sand Hill Road. Do they still have the wine in the lobby? I, you know, I can't tell you. I haven't been there. <laughs> You've never been there? No, I've, I've been to the San Francisco office, to San Diego, to Houston, Texas, and I would have been there if it wasn't for COVID. So it's oh. on my list of places to go. But wine is one of those, I didn't list it actually. It's one of the businesses we have. So we kind of, we got into right. the wine business. Gosh, I think it might be 20 years ago now where we saw lots of entrepreneurs in the tech scene in the States in particular. They invest in vineyards when they make their, their big exit. Here in Europe, they might go into art or something. Um, and we, we dipped our toe into um, fine wines. Uh, and so all along Napa, Sonoma, we, we bank the best vineyards around there. And I have to tell you, sometimes we can get great deals for our clients as well in terms of discounts on those wines nice. and, and visiting the vineyards. But yeah, it's a really nice aspect of the bank. Well, you should totally visit uh, the Central Road uh, office. I uh, <laughs> recommend it. So let, let's talk about Europe uh, instead of the States, because we are the Tech.eu podcast after all. You've joined, I think, about five, uh, maybe up to six years ago, uh, SVB. And I, I feel like the European tech scene has changed so dramatically in those five years. You know, we've been around for seven and a half years now, and I've seen tremendous change, especially in the last two years, actually. But even going back five years, that's, that's like a completely different world, in my in my opinion. So so how has it been from your your perspective? Yeah. Oh, you're right. I mean, it's it's transformed. And actually, it's interesting. I'd say it's still not mature. And that's the really exciting part about it. There's still lots to go for. But um, I think we're at the stage now, at early stages, where we're starting to see definitely second time founders come in and form new businesses again. And in some cases, third time founders. And I think if you compare that with the US, in the US, they might be on to kind of seven, eight, nine times building businesses. And that repetition, it builds trust in terms of capital coming into the ecosystem. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're starting to see more and more of the big US VCs, not just kind of invest in European companies, but also actually starting to set up offices in Europe. Um, you know, we've seen Sequoia, for instance, have a, a full-time office here on the ground. And I think that's going to be really interesting because the more you can open up pools of capital at all levels, not just the early stage, the faster you can continue to, to grow the ecosystem. And the other thing I think that's been really important and will continue to be important is actually that European governments get it. You know, they really have sort of pushed tech in the last few years in particular, front and foremost, in terms of how they want to stimulate their economies, 
how they want to create new jobs. And, you know, that's no matter what country you go into now around Europe, there's always some sort of government scheme or schemes that are focused on helping entrepreneurs set up companies. And the last piece I would say is that, you know, all of the other pieces of of capital and ecosystem support, whether it's kind of CEO, founder networks, whether it's accelerator programs, we've really seen some um, proliferation in that, but also some really good ones that can provide global connections um, for their founders. And all of that really helps to kind of boost the rate of growth of the ecosystem. But, um, you know, as I say, I still think that we haven't even reached anywhere near maturity here. So there's lots of excitement still to come in this market. Yeah, interesting point of view. I would argue that I agree with uh, point one and point three. The fact that you say that governments across Europe are sort of very um, welcoming to entrepreneurs and then people start their own business, I would say that's a controversial statement because I don't think, I think Europe in that sense is moving at two speeds. There are countries that are very focused on this, UK, Germany, France in particular, but I, I feel like a lot of countries in Europe are still relatively just not experienced to, to work with entrepreneurs and how they should deal with startups and scale-ups and investors for that matter and how to to store simulate them but i mean we could have a separate conversation about that probably for an hour but <laughs> can, we can and, and i think everyone's on a learning curve right i would say the uk is probably the biggest tech market in europe at the moment primarily because um you know after the first few companies started to really scale here the government was relatively early um in putting some of that those kind of support schemes through the british business bank in particular um in place and since then it's it's proliferated but you know you you do have you know, similar schemes, I suppose, around Europe and thinking of the likes of Vexfonden, for instance, um, that the Danish government has set up that is really sort of accelerating um, that economy. But I absolutely take your point. I mean, different company countries move at, at different speeds. That's fairly evident, all right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's talk about two of the, well, let's say main talking points, points here in Europe for the last few years, where, of course, how has COVID-19 impacted the business and economy side of things, and Brexit, of course. You being based in the UK, you can't really get around uh, that. So we'll tackle both of them, and then we'll get to the fun part. Uh, but how has Brexit impacted you as a business for Silicon Valley Bank, working with founders and investors across uh, the UK? How has it sort of changed the way that you work with UK companies or, or companies from, from abroad, actually? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the first thing I would say is whenever there is Whenever there's real change, um, such as Brexit, such as COVID, I think there are always opportunities. And I think entrepreneurs are the first to grab those opportunities. So Brexit, I would say, it's kind of, it's still happening. So we, we don't know all of the repercussions of, of what's going to happen. It's interesting for different sectors. So I would say for fintech, uh, for instance, we saw an awful lot of UK-based fintechs actually get ready for Brexit over a year ago. And they set up branches across Europe in order to get uh, licenses so that they could passport around Europe, particularly if they were in money services, remittance type businesses, then they needed to have those licenses set up. And I would say they have done that with different degrees of success. I think some of them um, were very well informed and were quite successful in building teams and building relationships with local regulators. I would say others, it's been a little bit more of a bumpy road where maybe they rushed into getting a license 
and several months after that possibly realised how regulators expected them to behave and actually have had to invest more in those offices on the ground to make sure that actually they do remain fully compliant. So, you know, we've been working closely with those companies to be as supportive as we can um, in terms of making connections on the ground in order to sort of help them maybe get talent in uh, or in terms of um, professional service companies who can help them on that journey. Um, I think for a number of, you know, of UK companies, they've been preparing for this for a while in terms of talent, in terms of where do their tech teams sit. And a number of them would have had tech teams sitting around Europe, either in Eastern Europe, um, Spain, Portugal were also increasingly um, sort of interesting, I think, for UK companies when they were looking for talent. And a lot of these, a lot of these companies um, do, you know, have been used to working remotely actually for a while, and it hasn't been necessary for them to have everyone in one place as you would maybe with a, a traditional type corporate. Um, so that's not to say though that there haven't been bumps along the way, and certainly post the first of January, the ones we've really seen impacted is any of those companies that are involved in the movement of physical goods. And I think the the deal was great to have, but it came very very late in the day. And so, you know, much as those companies wanted to prepare, there was only so much they could do if they hadn't actually seen what the documentation looked like. So we did see a lot of them um, build up stocks in preparation for that ahead of Christmas. Um, and that really helped them to, to make sure that they got through that point in time. They obviously needed to have the financing or the capital to allow them to do that. And then we saw in February, actually, a lot of those companies started to be impacted with delays in delivery times as their suppliers sort of figured out either how to get through the, the ports because there was a bit of a delay there, depending on where they were coming in, or indeed just dealing with documentation. Um, a lot of that has, um, has been resolved, but I would say not completely. Uh, so we're still waiting for, for that to come out in the wash. Um, and then the last piece of Brexit, which in many ways is in my view, one of the biggest for the UK is the agreement around financial services. I mean, financial services is where the UK is a global leader. It's very important that we have access as much as possible in an unfettered way to the European markets and vice versa. European uh, markets benefit massively from having um, having the city on its doorstep. So it remains to be seen, I suppose, what the impact is there. But overall, I would say, you know, we're, we're lucky to deal with a group of companies, particularly in the SVB portfolio, who are, they're nimble, they are used to dealing with difficulties. And so they are always looking for the opportunities to grow. Some of them have had to pivot their businesses. You know, that always has a little bit of a time lag in terms of your growth. But they've also, you know, by and large, had very, very um, supportive investor groups who have been, you know, helping them in terms of expertise, how they deal with this issue, as well as in some cases where necessary with capital. So um, not a terrible story so far, in many cases, a positive one, but it's ongoing and, and remains to be seen, I suppose, in the next 12 to 24 months, how it pans out in the wash. Yeah. But I think that you could say the same about the coronavirus pandemic. It's been mostly good for tech companies worldwide uh, in the sense that it's sort of driving their growth in, in, on different levels. Um, in Europe, that's also the, the case. It's not just uh, in the US or elsewhere. But I was thinking because you in the beginning, you said Silicon Valley Bank has sort of a you know, well-established office in the UK, lots of presence in Israel, uh, in Germany as well, other places in Europe. 
Does that still matter, though? Because the more entrepreneurs and investors that I speak to sort of, you know, it levels the playing field because everyone's working remotely. You can take remote meetings. You can do remote pitching sessions. Does it really matter to you as Silicon Valley Bank uh, to be based anywhere? Is this proximity to, you know, physical proximity to your clients or potential clients still that important as it used to be? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think every company is trying to figure that out at the moment. Um, where our thinking is at the moment is that um, while everyone is ro- working remotely, it doesn't matter. And in many respects, that's one of the reasons why we've seen so many US VCs um, make some pretty meaningful investments into European companies because, you, you know, they no longer have to get a flight across the Atlantic and, and carve out two weeks from their diary to do a European business trip. They're much more accessible and and founders have been really quick to use their networks to get on the phone and get in front of VCs, whether they're US or, or European VCs. So in many ways, it's um, it's making it easier to get in front of, um, of decision makers. I guess from um, a longer term perspective, though, um, the way, you know, I think we're, we're sort of what we're hearing from our clients and how we're thinking is that it's probably going to be a combination of the two. I do think people will still want to sort of have that personal interaction, go out for dinners together, have social networks physically. Um, I know I certainly can't wait to get onto the commute for maybe one day a week, maybe not five, but uh, and to go out for a nice meal and, and to and to sort of press the flesh, if you like, and, and meet the CEOs and founders. But I don't see it ever being five days a week again. And, you know, it's interesting when you think about things like conferencing. You know, you've got the whole conferencing world has been turned on its head and you've got these companies coming through like Hopin, for instance, that are are making it easier for, you know, four or five times as many people as would attend a typical conference to now attend the conference because they can dial in from around the world. Um, So certainly in terms of the lens we're looking through at the moment, we think it still makes sense to have um, boots on the ground, if you like, where you have those hubs, where you have that mixture of um, exciting companies and founders, where you have sort of the investor network and you have the technical know-how. They're all the kind of things that makes for a good location for SVB. Um, And, you know, for the moment, certainly our intention is to continue to expand into the European ecosystem, which we still think is one of the most exciting in the world. Yeah. So what will be the next markets? Is it Sweden, France, Spain? I assume those are on your list. But uh, do you have anything to share about which markets are next? Could be. Could be. Watch this space. (laughs) I think, uh, well, so we're relatively new into the Danish market. Um, and I think, you know, we're very interested in the Nordics. There's always been a long history of fantastic tech companies um, coming out of there. And so um, we're only we've only been in there for about a year. So we'll definitely be focusing on building out our presence there. Um, and certainly, I think when it looks when you look at other European markets, Spain is interesting. There's a lot going on there. Um, it's still early compared to, let's say, a German market or a French market. Um, but again, you know, some very exciting companies coming out of that region. So for the moment, we've no no new flags to place in the ground. Um, but expansion generally is something that we're absolutely looking at. And we're also looking at expanding the types of products and solutions that we provide to our clients. Like they're changing all the time. So we need to change with them as well. Perfect, because that was going to be my next question, which are actually the services that you... Because I know you were talking about uh, talking to your clients and what you hear from them. And I realized that I didn't. I don't really know who your client is. Is it the scale-up founders? Is it the investors? Is it both of them? Is it uh, you know the deal makers on the side of the table? 
who do you actually cater to and what kind of services do you provide to to all of those? Yeah, so I suppose we cater to the companies. So um, in the UK, you know, our, we've got teams who work with early stage companies, with VC-backed companies, with large corporates, with private equity-backed companies. So we, we work with the founders and the teams in all of those companies. We also have what we call a funds banking team that uh, provides day-to-day banking services for the private equity and venture capital funds, um, as well as providing credit services to those lines of credit um, where they need to supplement the capital that they're getting in from their LPs. Um, and so, you know, I suppose we think of services in two ways. One is where we're actually monetizing it. So we're selling day-to-day bank accounts, um, whether it's here in the UK uh, or whether it's in the US, for instance. We also provide a number of different debt structures, quite different to, to normal banks, I guess, insofar as we lend much earlier to companies. So from Series A onwards, if a company has raised, let's say, $5 million from a venture capital fund, we will start lending venture debt to those companies, even though they are cash burning and loss making. Um, as they get bigger, they might want to get involved in M&A, for instance, and we will provide acquisition finance to them then. Um, we've got different types of companies. So in, in fintech, let's say, where you've got um, money service companies um, and credit card companies, we provide things called warehouse loans, which are large loans that they can draw against their debtor book. Um, and then, you know, I think when you look at sort of the, the sort of the corporate um clients that we have, we're providing day-to-day lines of credit revolvers for them to manage their working capital, particularly as they expand in a, in a sort of a global sense geographically, as well as there's an awful lot of um, M&A and expansion capital that we provide. Um, and we think of like, there are banking services, but um, we tend not to be very salesy about it, which I've worked in lots of other banks. It's the only bank I've worked in that's not like that. But we really believe that we have to spend an awful lot of time understanding our clients and adding value that is not necessarily sell- selling a, sub- a service. Quite often, it's things with early companies like helping them to review their pitch decks to investors. We've seen so many pitch decks. We can help them, you know, sort of understand what good looks like. Or it could be introducing them to investors. Or we we understand because we bank the investors, which partners are interested in which particular types of companies and marrying them up. Um, or, or indeed, you know, if a company needs a non-executive director or they're starting to build out a finance team, then we work with the same CFOs that go from one tech startup to another. And we'll, we'll quite often connect them when we know the time and, and connection works. Great. So what are some of the products and services that you don't offer in the sense that I, I assume you don't take equity um, in, in companies when you when you fund them or you do maybe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you're not a typical LP, so you're not a fund of funds to VCs in Europe, I assume. Um, but <laughs> I'm going to let you do the talking. What, what do you actually not provide for the service? Well, it depends. <laughs> we do have a broader product um, reach in the US. So, for instance, one element that we have in the US is we've got a fantastic wealth management arm. Um, and so a lot of our founders, when they, they get investment, and particularly when they have an exit of any kind, um, you know, we'll help them with that. We also provide those services to a lot of the VC partners. Um, so far, we're, we're not in a position to launch that in Europe, maybe, maybe sometime in the future. But any of our European clients that may uh, relocate to the US, that's something we can provide them with. When it comes to equity, um, we do actually invest equity. Um, it's a very small part of our business so far, but one we're building out. 
we have a um, we've got two lenses on it. For the most part, we invest in fund as a fund of funds. So we invest in large, well-established VCs, usually that we have a relationship with for a while. Um, we are looking at European, uh, well-established European VCs uh, to invest in as well. We also have started in the last couple of years um, looking at direct equity investments. Again, most of that activity is in the US. Um, it typically tends to be at sort of Series B stage, maybe, um, where they've got some sort of traction. We're not a very early um, investor in sort of seed and Series A so much, sometimes Series B, Series C. Um, and quite often in those, we're going into companies that we know. So, for instance, they might be SVB clients. Um, and so there's a, a natural fit there. Um, and we are typically looking at um, high growth businesses. Those are going to have particularly large exits, maybe. Um, and so, yeah, so that's that's one aspect of, of what we do, certainly. And in the US, we're also very conscious of the need for SVB to stand up and take some responsibility for looking at diversity and inclusion in the ecosystem. Um, you know, we've, we've got a big brand and I think we have to use it for that. So in the US, we've actually launched a couple of funds that are particularly focused on working with those VCs and those founders who are from diverse um, backgrounds in order to really start to drive meaningful change in the ecosystem. Yeah, well, let's hope it comes to Europe uh, very soon as well. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, dig in a little bit deeper is uh, venture debt. So you mentioned that as an alternative for equity funding that I feel at least among European entrepreneurs is quite unknown and unloved. Uh, so I'm going to give you the chance to sort of uh, defend it as a potential uh, route of uh, funding for for wannabe startup uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah, happy to. And, um, you know, we have information on our website that gives uh, people much more detail on it. We'll only cover so much here. I guess the first thing for European um, founders to be aware of is that lots of different institutions call something venture debt, but actually it looks differently. So I'll talk about the venture debt we provide, which is a very kind of pure US version. And essentially, it's not to replace equity, it's to complement equity. So you'll usually take venture debt at the same time or shortly after you've closed your equity round. So if your equity round, for instance, gives you, let's say, 18 months of cash runway, the point of the venture debt is to give you another sort of three to six, maybe even nine months of runway so that you can build your valuation um, in a less dilutive way before you go to take your next equity round. And the structures are, are extremely flexible and quite simple. It's basically a term loan um, that amortizes over a life of usually three to four years um, it, uh, it can come in a single tranche. In other words, you draw it down all at once or it can come in two tranches if you want to be careful and make sure you've hit a milestone before you draw down the next tranche. Um, it will always have a warrant attached to it. So that is an option to purchase equity at uh, the price of the current round, which usually for, for, in, for in dilution purposes is less than 1% of the value of the company. And it depends on what stage the company's at. And the final thing I guess I'd highlight about, um, about the structure is that it shouldn't have any financial covenants. Venture debt is usually for Series A, Series B companies, so that's when founders are, you know, they don't care about cash flow. They don't care about EBITDA. They want to drive the top line. Usually it's all about growth. So um, covenants aren't very helpful because they can hamper a company. Um, and so we will let a, a founder use the venture debt for anything they want to use it for um, in order to drive that growth. 
Great. Well, that sounds uh, very founder-friendly to me. I'll dig it in uh, a little bit more on your website. Uh, we're going to wrap things up. Maybe one final question. I'm going to put you on the spot. What's the most exciting company that you're working with today? Ooh, oh, I'd have to say Sneak. Um, super excited about Sneak. Um, they're an absolute powerhouse. Um, fabulous team. A really, really nice culture in the company. Um, and I think, you know, uh, they've obviously raised uh, an awful lot of capital at this stage, but I think that they are going to go on to do great things. Um, and I think for the developer community, you know, they've fundamentally changed in some ways uh, the way that community is served. Um, we've seen, you know, Tiger Global, big US fund come in um, to support them, Stripes uh, and so on. And so, yeah. Sneak is, Sneak is going to be my enterprise software pick of the month. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that was a very fast response. So that's very clear. Okay. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for your time and explaining a little bit more about what uh, SVP does here in Europe. Uh, looking forward to seeing more. Great. Thanks, Robin. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, do subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcast. And if that place allows you to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse at sound-pulse.com. Do check them out. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are always very, very welcome. Send them over by email to podcast at tech.eu. This was TechEU Podcast. I am Andrew Degler, and I will talk to you again next week. For now, take care and enjoy your weekend. Bye-bye.